From a young age, Martin Shrimp was always looking for entrepreneurial opportunities, whether that was selling chocolate or doing raffles at school. His first official business, though, was founded right after university, a software development company called Sirius. It was at Sirius that Martin and his partner were asked to build a payment system for a friend's company. Something like PayPal for Columbia, he said. They had never heard the name PayPal before. So Martin looked it up, only to find out it had recently been sold to eBay for $1.5 billion. His first thought? If they can do it, so can we. The mix of ambition and naivete originated PayU, which became a global business and was eventually acquired by Naspers at a billion-dollar valuation. But Martin never stopped founding companies after the exit. Later came other successful startups like Zenobi, Centeo, and most recently Kokomo, a transparent marketplace that empowers people to co-own their dream vacation homes. Stick around to learn the most game-changing moments for PayU, how his experience bootstrapping compares with starting venture-backed companies, his thoughts on founder market fit, the backstage of Kokomo's recent pre-seed round of $56 million, and his advice on fundraising to early-stage founders. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam! Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice, so I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At Viva Real, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to zendesk.com startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. First of all, man, great to have you on the podcast. Fantastic. Thanks, uh, Brian, for having me. Actually, it's uh, exciting to be here, man. I would say actually took me under your wing in Bogota when we met back over 10 years ago. And we were both these kind of scrappy entrepreneurs much further along in your journey. Because talk a little bit more about where you were in, with Pagos Online or PayU and kind of give us a quick rundown on your story. And then I want to sync back up to when we ended up connecting in Bogota back in those early days. It's okay to say we're dinosaurs. It's fine, Brian. You know? <laughs> it's not too bad. We are the oldest. We're, we're, of the st- tech we're world. still young, but we definitely are dinosaurs in Latam Tech. As Latam Tech goes, it's we're definitely di- dinosaurs. No, for sure, for sure. I mean, we were probably the real the pioneers in that sense, right? I mean, as as things were kicking off in uh, Silicon Valley in the US, we were like very, very early on. Probably 
naively early on, right? Uh, and, and me more than you in that sense, Brian. So, because I, I started, we started PayU, which at that time was called Pagos Online in 2002, right? Uh, so I'd been, and I met you, what was it, 2007, would it have been? 2007. So I said 10. I should have said 15 years because we go back, <laughs> yeah. back about That's what happens. When you become a dinosaur, you get a bit more Alzheimer's too, but there you go. That's what, it, you know. it comes along with the territory, but we're, yeah, we're, we're sure. dinosaurs that have continued to reinvent ourselves. So exactly, we're, adaptive, exactly. we're adaptive dinosaurs. I like it. That's the way to think about it, for sure. Uh, so no, it was 2002. We started off, uh, there was no money, no VCs, just all organic, uh, basically bootstrapping for two, three years, as much as you could, not earning a penny while the company grew. And the story of, of PayU was basically me and a good friend who you know very well, Jose Reyes, we went to school together. We started a, previous to PayU, we started a, a web development company. And that web development company literally started it in the, his living room. And I always remember this dog just barking away at every time we try to talk to a client. So that was always like funny anecdotes of those days. But what happened is we had this web development company. We were selling to the UK kind of Colombian web development. And then eventually this guy came uh, who was a friend of a friend called Santiago Spinel and said, well, you know, um, have you guys heard of something called PayPal? And like, no. And he was a super sales guy in uh, Derremate, which was the big competitor of Mercado Libre in Derremate. And he was selling a lot of product at that time in, in the remate. And he's like, well, I need a payment platform and I've heard of PayPal and you know, I want, I want to set up PayPal for Colombia. We're like, great, okay. So we quoted him. We quoted him at that time to set up PayPal for Colombia, $2,000. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> luckily, luckily Santiago said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to pay you $2,000. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so he said, I want you to be partners with me. We're like, what's this guy talking about? And at that, at that moment, PayPal was literally sold to eBay for $1.5 billion. And we thought, well, if these guys could do it, well, why, why can't we, right? And so uh, that's when the naiveness of entrepreneurship starts. Uh, and that, that's what kicked it off. So the three of us started... Uh, pay you or Pagos Online that second that time bootstrapping like mad there was no e-commerce there wasn't anything in, in Colombia our first client was a emerald uh, seller I mean who's going to sell the emerald online it's already dodgy enough and, and it just took us it took us such a long time to even get a bit of traction um, and the moment we did get traction which was a year after that I think you know this story Brian but we had just like the most terrific fraud. We didn't know how credit card systems worked or anything like that. And uh, and we got a fraud, which was probably, I mean, at that time, that doesn't sound much now, but it was like $15,000. Uh, and that was just, you know, we, we'd been going on for about one year, working without a salary, and then suddenly we have to pay all this money and basically the company was dead. And so that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the initiation. But at that stage, Santiago stepped out. He said, this is a shit business. Let's get out of this. And Jose and I were like, and particularly I was like, you know, I think there's something here. We should keep on going. We should keep on going. There's like the real persistence, right? And everyone advised us to close down the business. But we didn't. 
And in fact, that fraud in a certain way became our most expensive MBA, but we became very good at detecting and controlling fraud. And I think that was what really managed to get PayU to, to take off initially in Colombia, right? And so we became relatively big in Colombia because other, other companies that wanted to sell online didn't have a clue how to control the fraud. Then we got into the airlines. And by the time I'd met you, it wasn't a massive company. We were probably like 20. And, uh, and we were the biggest payment processor in Colombia. Yeah. And so that make it or break it moment was that kind of that $15,000? Because like, what was it that gave you the drive to keep going and you got a partner that's like bailing up because there's not a lot of belief, there's not conviction. And what was the driving force to kind of just keep it going? I think it's like, you know, we were already quite deep into it. I saw that payments were still growing more in the US. And, and it just, it felt, it felt like it was going to eventually get there. Effectively, we were probably 10 years too early, right? And we probably started in 2009. <laughs> we might have, with good funding, we might have got to the same effect. But I think we just pursued it because we knew it was it was the future, right? When you know that there's definitely something there and it makes sense and e-commerce will take off. So we, we just it just made sense to, to keep on going at it. But it wasn't until actually quite a bit later up to you that it really, I mean, that it really started taking off. And, and when we when we received the the investment from NASPERS. But I think there were two moments. One was that moment and having that fraud and and, and really Kind of, it made us understand that we needed to be different and we needed to kind of create a technology that helped them. The second moment was when you must have been around there. I think it was 2008. These Argentinian guys came, uh, a company called Dinero Mail. And they were them. like, you remember them? Yeah. Yeah. Great guys, uh, Juan Pablo Russo and Alistra. And unfortunately, Alistra uh, died a couple of years back. It was very tragic on, on a parachute accident. Anyhow, they came and this Ali was like, he's a, a real character. Uh, and they came in and we're like, yeah, so we're the payment company of Latin America. We've raised $10 million and, you know, and we're going to take off on Latin America. Do you want to join us or do you just want to struggle and we'll just finish you off sort of thing? And we're like, I can't believe these guys went out there and raised $10 million. We've been struggling at the, I mean, they started in 2004, so two years later. We've been struggling at this and these guys go in, raise a lot of money. So it was a real, kind of, that was a real like wake up call. And so we ended up selling to them. Uh, I ended up moving to Mexico to become the country manager of Dinero Mail. And four or five months down the line, the VC that was meant to invest in them hadn't invested. So they hadn't paid us to buy the company. And so I'm suddenly working for the competitor. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> and uh, so the whole deal fell through. I went back to Colombia. I've got to be grateful. You know, thanks to them, I, I, I met Francine, my wife, um, in Mexico at the time. But by then, we were like a company that started to burn cash, didn't have the cash. Now we owed them money because the deal had fell through. And we're in a, just you know, a lot weaker position. But the reason I think it was the biggest wake-up call is like, we understood then the importance of, of fundraising and winning in the market. And so then we did. I mean, I spent the, the next year, which, which wasn't easy, we were trying to raise a million dollars. I spent the whole year trying to raise that money with a company that already was 
selling a million dollars, like, you know, valuation of about $5 million, very different to what we're seeing now, Brian, right? Complete different valuations. And I, we, we ended up raising, in the end, it was via NASPERS. And literally two years after that, we ended up buying, actually, it was about a year and a half, we ended up buying the Nero Main. So it completely reversed the, the game. That's interesting. And it's incredible to think of the juxtaposition of you hunting a million dollars. You've got a business, it's got product market fit, it's got customers, it's growing, and the struggle for that. And we're going to get into Kokomo in a second, but we'll talk a little bit more about your new venture, given that I'm part of that process. We got our first term sheet with a box of chocolates. So how's that for <laughs> juxtaposition of barely surviving, trying to inch out a, a million dollars in a, an established business and then to going having a company on a PowerPoint and getting a term sheet that came with some delicious cacao chocolate. That, that's is, that's quite, the, the, quite the change, right? Yeah, completely. And look, and at that stage, it was a company selling a million dollars. We're trying to raise one million out of five million valuation. And the term sheet we got, the only term sheet we got at that stage before NASPERS came in and kind of saved the day was one, one term sheet at a 2.5 million valuation. So they're giving us 2.5x on revenue on the biggest payment platform there. And if you look at the term sheet, it was a term sheet from hell. So it was like, had we left at any moment, we lost our shares, clawbacks. I mean, like 3x liquidation preference. I mean, it was like an absolute joke. Uh, and so so luckily, and the NASPERS came in. But even when NASPERS came in, this VC tried to stop the deal one way or the other, wrote to NASPERS, said, if you're going to do that, I'm going to sue you. I mean, such a different attitude of investments to what VCs are now. I mean, VCs are honestly... I mean, if they're not entrepreneurial friendly, they won't survive in the market because the entrepreneurial ecosystem will talk and, and will say this VC was no good. I remember a VC in Colombia was after that just got slammed by just a couple of, of entrepreneurs that spoke badly and, and they lost all the good deals. So, yeah, things have changed dramatically, Brian, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a new world we live in and we're going to talk a little bit more about that world. But I got a question for you because beyond we mentioned Pagos Online or PayU, we mentioned Kokomo, which we'll get to. So that's like kind of going from early days to the most recent. But you're a serial entrepreneur. You've had other projects. You've you launched Senteo, Ascendo, Zenobi. So you're also a, an angel investor. And then you've also got three kids. So Martin, how do you keep track of everything? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's not too different to you, Brian, but you've got a lot of things going on too, right? Um no, I just, I just, I'm very passionate about this, right? I mean, I think you saw it from when we met. I mean, we're, we're poor entrepreneurs going to meeting up in this thing we call Mangos, which was like an EO equivalent. Uh, and I think everyone that went to those meetings, including you and, and myself, were like super passionate about just building, building companies, building great companies. So yes, I have. I, I, I founded a Accendo, which is a a software as a service, a human resource software as a service company that's doing, you know, relatively well, selling on all of Latin America. A uh, good friend of mine who's the co-founder is running it. It's called Carlos Santana. Uh, so I'm not in the operation of it, but, but uh, very much involved and very excited about it. Then we founded with Tariq Al-Sharif, we founded Zenobi in 2000 and end of 2011, which is now the largest fintech in Colombia, 
expanded into Mexico as well, um, doing consumer finance and, and SMB finance. And Tarek's been a master at, at growing that company. Um, QED uh, backed the company and quite a few other investors. And so I think, I think in answer to your question, I think I've been very fortunate at just, you know, meeting the right people and partnering with the right people. I've always been very lucky with the partners I've chosen. Um, and they've been fantastic. We've got on well. I've never had a fallout with a partner. And I think that's, that's been super fortunate, right? And, and the same with marriage. I'm super, super grateful and lucky. I've, I found Francine. I met Francine. She's been an amazing wife. And I think that's, that's the trick to everything. If you want to have a lot of things and balance things out, you just need to have good partners in business and definitely a good partner for your wife, right? I mean, to be able to handle everything and handle the kids. I don't know. Would you say that that's uh, true to you, Brian, or what's, uh, what's your success for that one? I would say that's a, choosing the right partners is absolutely critical. Um, you keep the peace that way and you find people that compliment you and pick up where you compliment your your weaknesses and and support your strengths. So I think that's um I think that's spot on and it's funny because what is it about entrepreneurs like we're we're never kind of like satisfied. There's always more opportunities, there's more a new mountain to climb. So do you think that entrepreneurship is this a this some kind of thing that's innate in people or is this something that is a learned quality like how would you say have you always been an entrepreneur is it something you've kind of since early days growing up, or is this something more that came with time? No, in my case, it was definitely early days, right? I mean, I used to sell chocolates at school and do raffles and lotteries at school anyway to try and get some money to, to pay for my, my younger age partying. Um, so yeah, I've, I've always had that mindset and I, and I kind of was like, I didn't fall into entrepreneurship. I, it was a career choice for sure. I, I knew I wanted to do that. Um, so in my case, it has it, always been. It probably helped that my father was quite entrepreneurial, so that helps too. I think there's a specific trait on entrepreneurship, which is, is risk-taking, right? We, are, we have less fear of this kind of, of the risk-taking or, or we just have, you know, bigger appetite for risk. Um, and, I, and I see that already. I mean, it's the same thing with, with angel investing, right? I think that's probably why entrepreneurs are, in a lot of cases, the best angel investors too, because they understand they understand what previous uh, or what previously what they've gone through, and and they really have the appetite for the risk, and they understand you know it, it's a, it's a long term. But I would say, can someone who's very corporate become an entrepreneur? Yes, for sure. But they really have to have an alien, like so part of the DNA has to have a certain appetite for risk-taking and they've got to be okay with that. And if not, they're going to struggle and it's going to be the ups and downs with every company is it's just, and the uncertainty is so high. So if you don't have that, um, you probably won't be able to handle the stress. Let's talk a little bit more about bootstrapping because we come from the era where like there wasn't this overflowing amount of capital. Investors were, like you described, kind of take advantage of situations because there was no competitive dynamics and not offering fair terms. So how does your experience starting with bootstrap companies, 
How does that compare with starting, you know, venture back ones? And how do you look at that now as you've evolved in your entrepreneurial career? Yeah, I think there's there's positives and negatives, right? The, the bootstrapping one, and when you don't have a lot of competitors, it gives you enough time to play and to find proper product market fit. Sometimes, like in our case, it took us a year or two years and there was no one else going after this because there's no VC money and no one you know, being as crazy as us trying to build a payment company. But it gave us a lot of time to really tweak and polish that product before it started ramping up and the product market fit. The, the drawback is like you're just doing everything with, with the bare minimum and you can't hire amazing talent. You don't have the capital to do it. No one believes at that time, you, no one believes in stock and stock being something interesting. And so just the process is so much slower, right? Now, once you're venture backed, you, I mean, you can hire amazing talent. You can hire people that you wouldn't imagine, you know, people far better than you, um, which is super exciting. But then there's a huge amount of pressure also quickly to get to that product market fit and find that product market fit. Um, and sometimes entrepreneurs think they found product market fit when they haven't. And then they start growing. And then I've, I've seen kind of ugly situations because it's burning so much cash in a, in a company that's not actually, it hasn't really found it, its perfect product market fit. So in summary, I think those two, I mean, those are the, the pros and the cons of it. But um, in our case, at least now with, with Kokomo, the big thing is we've managed to get talent that you know previously was not possible. Not even would pay you early days, even when we first raised the money. The kind of talent and team that we've got now is just another league. Yeah, that's I'd say that's the biggest you know advantage. When I look back at, at Viva Real and we started out, we just didn't have the money to hire senior people, and frankly, like I wouldn't have. Like I wouldn't have known how to identify the best people. And I think that pattern recognition, when you've built enough companies for, you know, for long enough, you can start identifying what are the needs of a company at a certain time where you are in the process. We have built a great team in a short amount of time. Uh, kudos to you and, and the rest of the team. Let's talk a little bit more about Kokomo and kind of what you're building now on this next, this next venture. And maybe I can set the stage of how we kind of you know started on this on this venture together. I was waiting last year for this transaction to be you know to be approved at you know the sale of my company. We've been talking for gosh a long time. I mean like what what is it you know several years we've discussed floated some ideas about starting a fund together and I think that for me it's just like we've been good friends for a long time and we both enjoy each other and so it's like what might as well put our heads together and do something try to create value. And so I remember we kind of floated a handful of other ideas. And when recent news of I follow the folks, Spencer Raskoff and others, Rich Barton from Zillow, uh, given that I was in the prop tech space for a decade, and when the opportunity ar arose, we both kind of at the same time saw this opportunity of co-ownership model transforming. I think that we've both experienced the second home purchase, had the luxuries of spending time in a second home. and. Ironically, we, we both kind of had the same idea at the same time. And I even went and like started working on a, a few ideas, but I was just by myself and I didn't have a team and I didn't have the bandwidth because I've got latitude. And then when you pick the phone up and you called me and you're like, hey, I, I want to build my next business. I think before you said anything, I'm like, are you building 
this ownership model, <laughs> luxury real estate. And you're like, how did you know? And so we were so synced up on that. Yeah, and that's funny. So, so talk a little bit more about the vision yeah. you have for the business. Before that, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go back to, to our story too, actually. And then definitely I'll, I'll uh, go for the, the, the vision of the business. But um, yeah, look, I think our careers have been very similar in a certain way, right? If you think about it. And it's funny, like we were like the poor entrepreneurs in Colombia. Um, then, By the way, for everyone listening, Colombian, but British accent, I, no, people don't believe that you're Colombian when you speak English. So, um, you know, I'm, you I'm a proud to, Colombian, man. I'm a proud Colombian. You know, you, that. you, you are. Más colombiano que, que, que bandeja paisa, but que la arepa. Um, you, 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 arepa, arepa, arepita. You, you don't sound Colombian. So I think that's. You know, I, I'm saying the obvious here, but go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, you. for sure, for sure. A, a very good, you know, good point. But no, definitely 100% Colombiano, as they say that. So, but no, so just for the audience too, but what happened was NASPAS comes in, invests in us in 2009. We're about a million dollars in revenue, about uh, 30 employees. And over the next seven years, we ramp up. We become over 2,000 employees, about $300 million in revenue. And I ended up selling, I sell my company, I sell PayU to uh, NASPAS at over a billion dollar valuation. And that was like, you know, huge part of my career. And then in parallel, Brian, you, you go and do something so similar, if you think about it. I mean, you know, I remember I was at your parents' house having a barbecue when you got your first check, I think from Wenceslao Casares, and you just come back from your fundraising. And I was like, wow, this is just, you know, so cool to be here with Brian. And then you go all about Brazil, AAB, <laughs> and, uh, and build this massive company, Viva Real, and end up selling it also to, uh, to, to well, to Erle. Same buyer. Yeah, same buyer. And then we, we reconvene in 2000, probably 2017, we start talking a lot more. And then just as you said, I mean, we were, I was super excited about setting up a fund. You and I toyed with the idea. We meet Tom, uh, we go kite surfing with Tom, uh, Tom Baldwin, who's, you know, who's very much involved in private equity, and we're trying to get him involved and trying to help us set this fund. Eventually, Tom says, no, I'm not too sure because you guys are not going to be full time. And, um, and then you and I kept on going. In fact, you know, it was Latitude 4, the fund that we're kind of starting to set up, remember? Uh, yeah. And we go, we go even go and fundraise, which was fun. But then eventually, you know, we were seeing that certain areas of it, you know, you wanted to create more, which what is Latitude now, which is spectacular. And I was, I was still couldn't go full time, remember, because I was kind of in the midst with Senteo and Zenobi and helping them out. So it didn't happen. Uh, and then when this, when this idea of Kokomo came around, this idea of really allowing co-ownership for people, I mean, it was me jumping from, from fintech to proptech. I said, you know, who's the king of proptech and who's a friend of mine? It was like, it was just a, a slam dunk, right? Brian was like, okay, I've got to call Brian. And I called you and you're like, first of all, you say that. Are you going to build a company which is co-ownership? Like, wow, okay, it's bizarre. But the second was like, you're, you're so enthusiastic and you were so bullish about it. I was like, okay, this is just, we just got to do it. And, uh, and it's, yeah. it's been an awesome ride, man. It's been, uh, it's been super, super interesting. Let's get into that in a little bit. I, I want to double click on a, on a couple more things. 
there's one thing that we've talked about a little bit of this kind of mindset in Latin America where I think there's an external view of people in Latin America that historically people haven't thought global about their businesses. Mm -hmm. They've been very like, you know, provincial in building something for Colombia or local. And that's something that has always kind of bothered you, right? Can you talk a little bit more about yeah. why you're, talk, you're, you're talking about that? my chip, the chip on my shoulder, hundred percent. Yes, that little chip that you've got on your shoulder. Talk about that. Luckily, I always say to you, I've got I've got two chips to help, help uh, balance me out a little bit. But uh, now, look, I think I think the first chip was was actually pay you, right? Um, we were the probably one of the largest payment companies, um, it, definitely in Latin America and also in, in about sixteen countries. And, and I think the frustration was like, NASPAS is an amazing investor, but they wanted to really get into the operation of this. And I, unfortunately, I just didn't, you know, I didn't see eye to eye with the team that were operating this with sole control. And that, that frustrated me, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you've got a vision and then you can't take it where you want to take it, it's just very frustrating, right? And, and pay you just to get an idea was like, probably bigger than some of our competitors, which are now have done fantastic. By the way, I'm very close friends with them, but like a D local or an e-banks, which are, you know, we were, we were 10 times the size. And so to, to see that happening, it creates this kind of thing, you know, we were create, trying to create a really beautiful global payment company and NASPAS was kind of thinking more to invest in fintech. And so that created a massive chip on my shoulder. But the second, the second one is exactly what you're saying. It, you know, it does frustrate me as an investor when I constantly see like a Latin American entrepreneur saying, I'm going to build this for Latin or I'm going to do this for Mexico or Colombia. And I'm like, you know, this is tech and this is, you know, this, this vision of like we can raise money and go global. Why not? Um, so I think those, those two chips on my shoulders really pushed me to think of something a lot more global. And Kokomo is not a Latin play. It's a global play. Um, and I think in a certain way, that's also what, you know, you had a similar vision in that, and that kind of excited us together to join forces and, and, and build this. Um, and I think going a bit more into Kokomo, it's the same mindset that our other two co-founders have. Like Tom Baldwin was all about that. He's always pushing and saying like, you know, this is more of a, an American company going global, or even though we're starting certain things in Mexico and, and Graciela is Graciela Rango is the same. It's like super kind of this mindset of like, let's, let's take on the world, which is really kind of, kind of uh, put us together. Why do you think that there's been like a, a change in, in just general ambition of, of entrepreneurs in Latin America? I mean, we've seen, we've seen a handful of, you know, companies kind of go global or regional very quickly. Do you think that, that's something, there's something happened. Was there an event that happened? Is there some kind of, what is the driving force behind that? Are, are just entrepreneurs more experienced? Are they, what allows them to dream a little bit bigger? Definitely an entrepreneur now that wants to raise money in Latin America has to say, we're taking over Latam, right? And, and that's happened more so, okay? There's definitely a few companies that now have succeeded more in Latin America, but really, truly global tech companies from LATAM, I mean, there might be a few that, that have like, you know, D-locals set up operations in 
Turkey and other places, but truly, truly global, less so. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about why have, haven't the Skypes and the Spotify's and the Waze's, I mean, Skype, Spotify from Sweden, Waze from, from, uh, from uh, Israel, um, that hasn't happened in Latin America. I haven't seen a LATAM company really taking over the world. Maybe Alex Torrenegra with specifically Voice Bunny, but otherwise you don't hear about that, do you? I mean, I'd love to hear if you think there's a... Yeah, there's not that many. I mean, there's a couple of cases. My friends over at Wildlife, they they built a gaming company that Benchmark backed, which is a, now a multi-billion dollar company and it's based in San Francisco, but they started Moral uh, from Argentina, uh, which has raised, you know, over $100 million and they're situated in San Francisco. But you're right, not probably can count them on one hand. Um, you're planning on building a global business and we can talk a little bit more about the model, but first... The other day you had this realization when we were kind of doing a catch up and you're like, you know what? This is the first time I've really found founder market fit. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, no, that, I think that's the other passion, right? One thing is that I saw this business model could go global and we want to take it global. But the other thing was like really being passionate about building something that I felt the pains uh, in the past of, right? Like, to co-own a property, especially a vacation property or holiday home, makes complete sense, right? I mean, you're going to use this property a few weeks a year, max, um, and then what? You're going to get tied up with the whole property and the property management and all the expenses. It doesn't make sense. But on the other hand, co-ownership, uh, if not done in the right way, it can be complex, right? So, I mean, the perfect example is I, um, I have a small place on a lake in Colombia that we bought with like three friends. And, and you know, great. We divide the cost. It's some, it sounds great at the beginning. But when you don't have an intermediate player like a Kokomo, really making sure that everything is paid and the property management's done, um, that the time allocation is fairly distributed, it just becomes a pain. You, you start and you end up having fights with these friends and, what happens if one of the friends, which did happen, uh, doesn't pay the bills or is not paying the monthly thing? So then the other two or the other three have to fork out for them, right? And and that's why when when I saw Kokomo and the whole what it could be, it just made so much sense, right? Because it's this player that allows co-ownership of vacation properties around the world in the right way. And so if someone wants to buy a part of a property, they can do it. Kokomo will go and buy the rest uh, and then resell those parts. So there could be four owners or up to eight owners in a property. But the beautiful thing is Kokomo is in charge of the property management, making sure the property is kept, kept up well. Um, and even better, if one of the eight shareholders doesn't pay the, the bills, Kokomo will go in and start paying for that other shareholder. So the other seven owners of the property won't even notice about it. And if that person continues to not pay, eventually Kokomo can repossess that, that uh, co-ownership of that person, sell it back in its marketplace, pay him back his, his part, and then take over, you know, take over what, what was due to Kokomo. So just, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely the first time I found Oh, I'm founding a, a company that I'm completely enamored with and I'm, I feel a, a founder product market fit. 
And I think it's it's important to to also, I guess we're kind of going live with some news here. We just raised a pretty massive round. We we talk a little bit about that. <laughs> What's yeah? Talk a little bit about that round and fifty six million. Why so much capital? Let's let's explore the idea of why to raise that much money this early was important. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. Um, so yeah, going back to the old days of fundraising is super interesting, but we were incredibly lucky, lucky in that sense. And, and I think. You know, thanks to your expertise and and my expertise too, that we could we could do this. We you know, building an amazing team with Tom Baldwin and Graciela. I think the four of us it really allowed us to go out and do probably one of the biggest pre seed rounds uh, kind of in history, right? So raising a total of fifty six million uh, between debt and equity. The reason the reason we're pretty aggressive about it is precisely because we're not. We're not thinking small. We're not thinking just for Latin. But the second thing is we're talking about having to sometimes acquire some of these properties, right? So the typical business model is we'll find the property that makes sense. We'll list it on our website from kokomo.com. If we find like three or four buyers that are interested or showing interest in that property, we'll go in, acquire that property, and then create all the structure, uh, an LLC, a Delaware LLC, and then find the other buyers. So in order to be able to do this and do it effectively, you have to be aggressive at raising, at raising not only equity, but debt. Because otherwise, a player that goes into this without raising a lot of capital is going to have to now try and find, say, all eight buyers at a time. And by the time they find the eight buyers, the property might have been sold. So you don't create that the right momentum uh, to be able to do it. And that's, that's the reason you do need a lot of capital. And this is a pre-seed, but I imagine if, as, as things are going and we show the traction that we're, we're, we are showing, the Series A will be just a lot bigger to be able to, be able to do that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited about, I mean, when I think of a consumer, first of all, PropTech, it's such early days in PropTech. I mean, you look at Quinto Andrade just announced that they raised a follow-on of $120 million from Tencent and I think someone else. I mean, it's the largest asset class class in the world. It's not a digital transaction. There's so many different aspects of the of the real estate value chain that exist. You have the financing, you have the purchase, you have, you know, you have the rental market, you have the sale market, you have the luxury, luxury end, you've got the digital broker, you've got, you've got so many different aspects of it. And so there's a, a strong opportunity to be able to reshape the experience of people that are going out and, and purchasing real estate. I think that it really resonated with me also when we, when we talk about the business as a consumer. A lot of people dream of having a second home. I remember being a young kid and saying, someday I'll, I'll, I'll have a, a second home in Lake Tahoe or in Baja California. And that dream becomes a reality at some point if you work hard and you're in a position. But it's not always the best use of your capital to just plunk down a big check for buying a property, particularly in a transaction where you may have a cross-border transaction, right? Talk about who, who the potential buyers for your business and, and you know, how, how do you expect that to be facilitated? Yeah, and I think you're hitting a, a super interesting point that probably got to, to, to me completely too as a, as a founder market fit or product market fit you talk about. But it's the fact that we're trying to make these kind of properties more accessible. 
to many. And to allow them, I mean, our, our mission is like uh, memories deserve home and they shouldn't have to wait. That's our mission, right? And what does that actually mean? It means that we want people to be able to enjoy these properties with their family and, and uh, their friends now and not 15 years down the line. The biggest fear I had was that, like, I've got three kids, Brian, you know them, you know them well, uh, the 10, 9, and 7. And I don't have a second home. I mean, apart from this place I talked about two years ago that, you know, but I don't go to it. It's, it's far away. I don't have a second home close to Mexico. And I was like, wow, I, you know, the best memories I had as a kid growing up were precisely that, were, you know, spending time with my family in, in these second homes or these vacation homes. We had we used to have a little beach house uh, we used to go to. And it was just, you know, it was amazing. The three brothers were just spending the best time there. And then, then I had the fear, like, oh, my God, you know, my kids are growing up. I don't have this. They're not going to have a memory. I mean, I've been spending my life going to different Airbnbs, which are great, but they don't really create, you know, going back to the local place and feeling that it's their home. But then I had the second thought was, Okay, I want to have that. And the other thought was like, well, do I really want to have a full property myself on the beach in Mexico, which then ties me down to this place all day, you know, all year long. I'm worried about it, worried about the cost, about the upkeep. And so this is precisely that kind of product. It's the product that allows you to have a place that you can call home that it's an equity investment because you're really buying the real estate and, and the, 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 the real estate can appreciate just like any other real estate. Um, but without all the hassles and the, and the problematic of upkeeping a home. Um, and so that's why it kind of really resonated with me in, 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 in all senses. So who is, who is, the, who is this buyer? It's, it's the savvy um, kind of traveler, it's the person who wants to maybe go back to a place because he's very he likes that place, um, but doesn't want to feel tied down, and has a, more of an open mind in the sense of like of a shared economy world, right? Because it makes more sense. I mean, it makes more sense than renting, for sure. Because if you're going to rent this place year over year, it's going to cost you a lot more. But it also makes more sense than buying outright the full property because of the burdens of all the expense and the amount that you're going to use or that you're going to have to then rent it out on Airbnb. So I see, I see this kind of more sophisticated, clever buyer who, who sees this as a smarter way of investing that money and, and having a good time. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not just an investment. It's more the emotional side, but it's a smarter way of, of putting your, your dollars down. Do, do you think that every founder should, to start a company, you need to be very passionate about the solution and, you need to like should should every founder get behind a company that solves their problem or is connected somehow with their purpose because it, this really resonated with you but you've had other businesses that that maybe just were financial opportunities right so how does that differ and maybe give your perspective on why why that's different this time uh, because it's something that you you know that you want as a consumer yeah just because I didn't use like, or I wasn't using it constantly as a pain point in the payment company, didn't mean I wasn't passionate about it, right? So there's two, there's two separate things. I think, so breaking down your question, I think an entrepreneur has to be passionate and believe 
in what he's building, for sure. That's number one. Doesn't necessarily have to be the consumer of that product. Um, And this one just happens to tick both boxes, right? I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate because I think one of the things that kind of groups or ties up our, our team in Kokomo is we all like traveling. We all speak multiple languages. We're, there's that kind of mentality of, you know, uh, of world travelers. Um, and so that's tied us. And, 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 and so we're very passionate about what we're building. But in my case, even second, I'm a buyer of this product. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a complete, uh, I'm a believer in this. Well, in fact, you are too, right? You're about to buy a, a Kokomo and Sayulita brand. I, that's, uh, I'm, very, I'm very excited about that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's true. I, I'm going to be the first customer. So obviously I'm a believer as well. Now that there's so much money sloshing around Latin America, where we were in this, this kind of dry desert, what advice do you have for early stage founders that maybe haven't had the same experience that you've had of bootstrapping and being lean and mean and operating and scaling companies? You know, what, what's the first piece of advice you would give an early stage founder that all of a sudden finds a lot more access to a fair amount of capital? Probably, I think the biggest advice I'll give them is like, these markets won't last forever, right? I've seen, I've lived through, you know, I lived through the dot-com bubble and I was very close at it. And I saw a lot of companies raising a lot of money and burning it fast and just not having a business model that was sustainable. And only, only a handful really survived through it. I feel that there could be a, a similar repetition here. And so, you know, you have to be aggressive. Yes, if you've got the capital, you have to grow fast. But you also have to be conscious that that next round might not be that easy to raise as that first round that you had. Um, and, and just be worried about it. I mean, I've seen people raising all this money and then having a, a launch party when they're, you know, when they're launching their website and another party. And, and you know, just not being completely conscious that that doesn't actually give any return to the investor. Um, so my fear is some of them are misspending some of the money too. If you're very conscious and really investing in growth and understanding that every dollar that you're putting in is giving you two or three dollars back, great, but there's a, there could be a lot of mistakes and people just assuming that they will do all to raise the series a, B, C, and D, and everything will be rosy. And that's, uh, that's a handful of entrepreneurs that actually managed to pull that off. Yeah, and I, I think back to like um, talking to entrepreneurs, people often would talk about like their headcount, like it was some kind of metric that was important and like a badge of honor to have a lot of people. And having both of us of having run fairly large organizations know that that's not the sign of a, of a, of a good company, right? I mean, if anything... Revenue per employee is a good metric, but number of employees is, is, is not. So I think that's another piece of advice is, you know, scaling the team appropriately. Of course, if you found product market fit and you've nailed it and you need to scale it, by all means, go into hyper growth mode and when hire aggressively. But I think that if I think back to the early days of my entrepreneurial career, if someone had given me a ton of money, I don't think I would have been very efficient with it back then. And so... I think that's good advice for those entrepreneurs. I want to um, kind of wrap up here in a second, but when you look at, you know, you've done a little bit of angel investing. Now that you're focused on building the business, is that, are you going to still do angel investing or are you going to be 100% focused on the business? 
How is that? How do you think about that as an entrepreneur that's, you know, that's building a business? I'm very passionate about the angel investment. I've done like probably 20, 25 uh, angel investments and, and it's, and it's, a, it's a lot of fun and, and I love helping the other entrepreneurs. But now I've come back into the game. I'm probably going to be doing a lot less angel investment. In fact, I've had a few people reach out and I'm like, look, I'm, I just want to really focus uh, because it, it is distracting, right? It, it takes a lot of uh, time out of it. It doesn't mean that maybe once things are a bit more uh, stable in Kokomo and and, uh, and we've shown the traction that we needed to, then I'll probably go back into uh, angel investing. But I think you've got you to focus on, you know, we have a big responsibility now, Brian. We've taken money from investors and we understand the importance of the return to investors. So it's going to be full focus on making sure that they get a great return and we build a fantastic business. And so any, any second that takes time away from, from Kokomo is, uh, is something I don't want to do. Apart from is my family because I don't want to get divorced. So I have to have a bit of balance, but yeah. <laughs> As we close out here, I want to reflect on a couple of things. I actually have you to thank for a lot of the latitude stuff because you mentioned mangoes earlier in the conversation and mangoes to me was the first community that I belonged to where as an entrepreneur, I got to talk to other entrepreneurs and it's a lonely journey, right? And so we always say that at latitude. And so what was it about? Because you were one of the originators of this group, right? Why did you start a little community and what was your motivation for bringing entrepreneurs together to kind of help support them on their journey and kind of why did you start that group and what were you looking to get out of it? Yeah, great point. I mean, when you're an entrepreneur, um, especially when, when we were doing it, it was a super lonely task, right? Because you've got you and your business partner and then you don't, you can't afford to be hiring people at the same level as you and, and the kind of same background. Um, so there's no one to really challenge your ideas and to give you different advice. Um, a lot of the, the top performance of universities just wanted to go and work in big multinationals and Procter and & Gamble and companies like that. So it was, it was really, really important to create this community of like-minded people um, to ta- challenge your ideas, to present to them. It was like a board, board of advisors, right? And I think that's, that's the beautiful thing of, of uh, latitude in all ways. I mean, you're creating this just immense community of like-minded people, people that really want to create amazing products. And, and kudos to you, Brian. I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've been on your, on your uh, demo days or the, the investor days, and I've, I've really enjoyed them. And the level of entrepreneurs that you're getting are fantastic. But also when I speak to them, they, they really enjoy precisely that, you know, have been part of that community, being able to reach out to other entrepreneurs and ask them and, when you, can, when you can just share, like, what tools are you using that work for you? Uh, what best practices? How do you handle your meetings? Do you use OKRs or what do you use? I mean, it's just so valuable because you're not going to get that from your friends and family that are any corporate job, right? So it's, it's really, really important. I also set up a, a poker group here in Mexico of entrepreneurs, and, and I, I really enjoy that. Um, not only to play poker, but we're using it precisely for that too. You know, I mean... We share ideas, great hires we put there if we're looking for something. So I think that comes down to that. And I think it comes down probably to why you, you've built Latitude, right? You tell me why, 
what was the reason for Latitude the way you built it? Yeah, I mean, I think that we talk about this a lot, just that if you're in San Francisco or in the Bay Area and you want to talk to someone about growth, you just walk across the street, right? Uh, to kind of quote David Velas in one of the demo days. And, you know, that community of supporting each other is something that I think was lacking in Latin America. And there's a lot of talent. There's now a lot of experience. And so the healthy ecosystem is one that there's a give first mentality where you have this virtuous cycle and you're you're helping other people. And the little funny secret is when you help someone else, you know, you actually learn in the process. And so it's kind of the way I look at angel investing is that, of course, I'm looking for a financial return, but also I get an, an exposure to a different perspective, ideas, sectors, and I, I get to like the secret is I get to learn a bunch. And so I think that healthy ecosystems have that. And that's kind of one of the one of the objectives that we have and bringing people together and, and, and supporting each other. You know, that's something that that's kind of why we started Latitude. But I definitely remember those early days. And uh, sometimes just having someone that has empathy and and can just listen to your, your experiences is important. Obviously, the experience and ideas of, of how to tackle certain problems is, is key and critical. Is there anything else that you think about that you w- wish you knew when you were starting out or that you, as an entrepreneur, like today, that you're like, it's so obvious today, but I didn't really know this when I was starting out. Yeah, like it wasn't obvious to me the importance of um, of HR in the company, and uh, and I think still companies in Latin America kind of put HR as like you know they're, they're definitely not at the same level as like a CFO or. Uh, but startups and tech companies are now seeing it a bit more. Like you get the, you know, these positions of chief of staff and the, the really importance of retaining amazing talent. So in PayU, I think we were not that conscious about, you know, always hiring the best of the best. Um, and the difference is massive when you can really focus on just hiring the best of the best and making sure you've got this talent density. So that's something... I just, you know, you only gain with, with a lot of experience of, of how important it is. Yeah. And not only so, that, so having someone, sorry. Not compromising, basically. Yeah, not com- I mean, not compromising. And, and also then finding someone, when you're going to get the head of talent or chief of staff, someone who's going to, you know, not just help you recruit amazing people, but retain that amazing people and make sure they're completely motivated and make sure they've got everything they need. And I think that's... Uh, that's something I hadn't realized. And the other thing, I mean, I go back to how lucky I was with the business partners, right? And, you know, both Jose Vélez and Tarek and, and Carlos and Tana and, and you and Tom and Graciela. I mean, I've been super, super lucky with business partners, but that's not always the case, right? Um, maybe because egos get in the way and, and people get uh, just greedy, but... This, this is the most important thing. The most important decision you'll be doing is, you know, not only what partners you'll have as co-founders, but what investors you're going to bring on board and that you're going to be able to get on with the investors. Because I've seen so many companies getting destroyed because the co-founders just couldn't get on or egos got in the way or they got the wrong investors on board and, and that just destroyed the, the board. So I think those, those two are, you know, be very careful about choosing the right partners, the right investors, and just hire the best if you can. 
When you think about co-founder partnerships and you look back to Jose and you, did you always feel like, oh, you know what? It's obvious who should perform what role in the company. Like, how did you define equity splits? And then also, how did you define roles and in, in operations? Like, was that very clear for you from the get-go? Um, yeah, kind of. We never had, you know, one, one of the good things, I think, is this whole thing of no egos, right? So we were running two companies. I was running, you know, at, at one point, we were trying to run everything together. Jose was doing the tech, and there was no... There was kind of no CEO for, for PayU. Uh, and so at one point, I became the CEO of Sirius, which was the other company we had. Jose became the CEO of, of, of PayU. Uh, and then when PayU started just taking a lot more traction, uh, basically Sirius kind of got absorbed or we basically, I, I came and joined the team. So he was already the CEO and I, I, I worked on the business development side and we just created a, a fantastic team. So I don't think... That was something, yeah, it wasn't like we, and when we started the company, we we're all equal shareholding, the, so that, that didn't make a difference. I think it was, um, it, it was, it just made sense because that was the way it was and it worked well. Uh, so I don't think that was uh, something that roles, how you define the roles or not. I, th- I honestly think the biggest thing is if, uh, if all the egos of the, the co-founders are, you know, they understand that that egos can kill companies, then things run. You know, if they're that kind of mentality and they're humble enough, things run smoothly. One hundred percent agree. A couple of the questions on in choosing investors. We went out to the market and with Kokomo, you know, we ended up bringing some great investors on board. What were you looking for in that decision of who you wanted to partner with? Obviously, it's a place of luxury when you have a decision about who you're going to partner with, um, because historically we both didn't have any options and we were just praying that someone would would invest in our companies. But now that, that we're further along in our journey, what did you look for in, in a partner from the investor side? No, we're incredibly lucky, right? Because we're like nearly 3x oversubscribed in, in this round. And, and so we could really kind of um, choose like, I think we, it was very clear we wanted, this was a global play. So for us, having uh, a US and a European investor were really, really critical. Um, but I've also been very conscious about the importance of, of finding a good local partner, right? We knew Mexico was our first place to start off with. And when you're starting off, you need those local contacts. So I'm, I'm a huge believer in anyone setting up a company to think about that combination, maybe a U.S. investor and a very good uh, local investor. And our local investor in this case was was all VP and, and they're just fantastic. I mean, I had a, a long relationship with them before. They are, for me, one of the best VCs in, in Latin America. Um, very founder-friendly and just, just good people, right? You just want to get on with people that you know have similar mentalities. But also very shrewd and very connected in the market itself, right? And, and um, so they can, they can really help dramatically. And I've seen that be the case for many of the companies that have invested. They really roll up their sleeves. And um, so that was, a, that was a big deal. And then, then we were fortunate enough to have an array of, of amazing other investors from European and, and US investors that came on board. Yeah, that relationship is super important. In the case of OVP, I mean, you've known the team over there for a while. You were 
investment committee. Um, so you got to see them in action, right? And so actually, let me let me add to that. One of the biggest things I saw for them was I saw two companies in the past that I knew that they were, that they were part of the portfolio, and they went out of business. And I asked entrepreneurs, you know, what was what was your experience? Because that you know you need to ask entrepreneurs that have gone bust how the investors really reacted. And both entrepreneurs said like, well, these all VP guys were just fantastic. And that's when you know if it's a good investor or not, because some, some can just be ruthless. And, and, and you, know, you know, we're not in this game to try and make a company fail. We're, we're putting all our heart and soul and most entrepreneurs are right. Um, so when I, when I discovered that, you know, I think big advice for any entrepreneur is if you're going to take money from an investor, you got to do that reference check on the investor deeply and, and see how they reacted when things went wrong with, with another entrepreneur. I think that's great advice. And I often encourage people at Latitude to diligence investors. I think that a lot of entrepreneurs that don't have a ton of experience, they're kind of just happy to even talk to an investor or have the exposure to an investor. And they would kind of take any investor they can get. And the best entrepreneurs know that they want to find the right partner for them too. And I think that your advice on asking founders that have had blow-ups or problems that didn't work. I mean, if you go ask Oscar, he's going to say great things about all VP, but that was pretty, I mean, relatively smooth sailing. They had some hiccups along the way, but usually they're hiccups like from, you know, up into the right hiccups, problems like, oh, antitrust problems, which is not, that's not the same problems your company just going out of business. So it's easy to be a good investor during peacetime where there's like everything is flowing and working, but you learn about people in in the, you know, kind of in those dark moments, right? Where, you know, people lost their money and that's difficult. How do people react in those situations? And so what, what were the kind of the things that they shared? Like, what were they just professional and how they. No, that they they were professional, they're supportive. They, they were trying to help until right the end. Uh, and when things just didn't work out and they blew up, they, you know, they acted like gentlemen. I mean, that's that, that's basically how it is. And and we did do that. We did that. We did these reference checks with all of our investors. We we did deep reference checks, not just like talking to two or three founders from each investor. Um, and I think it's super important because you, just, you don't know that. And I always tell investors on the other side, you know, your reputation is you know, it's key because you will never get into the really good deals if you don't keep that. Word travels fast. Um, speaking of LVP, I had Antonia Rojas on last last week. So awesome. she shared a little bit more about her perspective. So uh, this is great. Team. Great team. I've enjoyed this conversation. And, and how are you approaching it now as like a third, fourth time entrepreneur? How are you different today tackling this? You know, are you more patient? How does that put you in a different position leading a company after you've been through a bunch of other businesses? Again, there's good and there's bad, right? I'm definitely a lot more experienced on managing teams and resolving problems in teams and and trying to keep the team motivated. But one thing that's funny, Brian, and specifically you and I, we, we come from a world where we had to bootstrap like mad, right? And we were looking after every single penny and sometimes it's hard to then get into this mentality of like you raise money, go spend, right? Go and really be aggressive. Uh, and in that sense, it's been it's been awesome balance with Tom and Graciela because they've got 
you know, specifically Tottenham's got, you know, this mentality of like, yeah, we've got to, you know, be more aggressive too. So that it's been a good balance, but it can hinder you if you come from a mentality that you're too bootstrapped in the past because you're not used to the new way and how aggressive you have to be with, with surplus cash, right? I, I agree. I had the same problem because at Viveral, I mean, we, we eventually broke out and raised a fair amount of capital and it would put us in a position to compete. But I had trouble, like, you know, I had a pretty tight grip on a dollar because there wasn't always, you didn't know where your next dollar was coming from. And so I think that there's a luxury of, of starting. First of all, if you bend down the journey of building a venture-backed company already and scaling a company, you're obviously more equipped to manage that, that process and, and know how to allocate resources. But I mean, you know, you look at some of these companies, you know, the loft guys, they start out with a ton of money from the very beginning and, you know, they already built a business. David Vela is not like a ton of money, but had a check from day one from Sequoia, you know, you know, had a, a few million bucks in the bank from before anything existed. And it allows you to think bigger, right? Like that, that's, that's the luxury of having venture dollars is that I think that my lack of access to capital early on building my business, it shaped the thinking and it decreased the size of the ambition because I didn't see a path to build something bigger. And so I think that the benefit of, of, of having venture dollars behind you is that you can start reimagining the world differently and saying, okay, if money, one of my favorite questions is, if money wasn't an issue, what would you do? You know, what would you build? And that's a great exercise because it forces you to think without having the same constraints. And then you can be very imaginative about what the world you want to look, what, what you want to look like. And that's where some of the best solutions come. Yeah, it's very good. It's a, it's a very good point. But you have to kind of get out of that, that frame of mind. If you've been bootstrapping for the last 10 years or you had that when you started your previous company, that kind of come back and bites you a bit. So I'm very fortunate to have two co-founders, which um, for them, it's like a first time. And so it's super complimentary. I mean, I mean, you and I have known each other for a long time and I'm probably the oldest one too. But if you start looking, either, even the age, Tom is like 38, Graciela is 28. Well, actually, Tom is 37, I don't know. So there's like eight years between each of us. And then what are you, Brian? You're 40, 42? 40. 40, okay, there you go. So there's like... We can even break it down in four-year chunks between each of us, um, which I think is, is amazing because then when I speak to Graciela, her, her mindset and mentality is very different still to mine. And it's super, it really creates uh, very complementary discussions uh, to get things going. So, yeah, the richness of having multiple perspectives on a team is is, is critical, right? You, you need to have, because if everyone's the same, you know, has the same experience, the same not going to be challenging the other person. And, and it's, it's a complimentary aspect when you've got multiple perspectives at the table discussing things. For sure, for sure, for sure. Nice, man. So, no, I think, you know, there's good learnings and, uh, yeah, there's a mixture of everything. But um, I still go back to saying, like, number one criteria for most successful entrepreneurs is still persistent, right? Because persistence is the one that gets you through the lows and it's always lows and highs and you know, lows and highs and this roller coaster. And, and if you can do that, I think that's when you'll, you'll come out of the other side, right? Absolutely, man. If, if you, if you stay after it, you know, eventually you'll, you'll get kind of get over the hump and, uh, 
Well, listen, man, I'm glad you stuck with it at PayU because it, it put you in a position to be where you are today. And and I had the privilege to join you on the journey. And I can't wait to get, get my Kokomo pretty soon here. Uh, and and we'll, we'll definitely... Uh, I know we'll have to have you know, uh, our first board meeting your Kokomo. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Bo- board meetings in Kokomo is, is the path. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking the time. Exciting next era here. Uh, it's been a whirlwind short amount of time we've been on this journey, but extremely excited and bullish about what's to come and really enthusiastic about being part of this and excited about what we can build. Thanks, Brian. Really enjoyed the, the chat too. And uh, it's amazing to have you on board. And I think we're going to build a, an awesome company. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Martin Shrimp, co-founder of Kokomo, PayU, and more. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.